Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 418th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today in part by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, as you know from this broadcast, is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. For some payers, contract time is coming around soon, and for some that means there could be some problems when it's time to renegotiate with payers, as you know. Uh, You are correct, and when providers and payers come to the negotiating table, they'll be doing so in light of the impact made by the coronavirus. Mm, Indeed, it's a whole new ballgame, actually. And that's why we asked Terry Fletcher to report on how providers can prepare for negotiating those new contracts. I'm sure that will be very interesting. And also on this broadcast this morning will be Lori Johnson, who has the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. And that report's going to be interesting as well. And later on the broadcast, our good friend Dr. H. Stephen Moffat concludes his exclusive series on the impact of climate change on mental health. And speaking of friends of the broadcast, Susan Gatehouse will report on how to prepare for post-pandemic audits. They are coming. Indeed they are. And you have a talkback segment this morning. What are you going to be talking about? I'm going to talk about uncodable acronyms in COVID-19. Oh, looking forward to that indeed. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University Bookstore. Reminding you that Dr. Eric Reamer's ICD-10 flowcharts provide quick guidance to the correct diagnosis codes for potential COVID-19 cases. Use the ICD-10 Monitor Resources tab at the top of the web room for more information. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And back in April, CMS announced that it already had advanced $34 billion in Medicare reimbursements to over 17,000 providers. According to a quote, from CMS Administrator Seema Verma, healthcare providers are making massive financial sacrifices to care for the influx of coronavirus patients. Many are rightly complying with federal recommendations to delay non-essential elective surgeries and preserve capacity and personnel protect and personal protective equipment. They shouldn't be penalized for doing the right thing. Amid a public health storm of unprecedented fury, these payments are helping providers and suppliers so critically, so critical defeating this terrible virus to stay afloat. Some private payers like Blue Cross, like payers under the Blue Cross banner and the United Healthcare banner, began offering their own version of advanced payments to allegedly help them under the strain of COVID-19. Also in April, Blue Shield of California said that it would pay $200 million in direct support and advanced payments and other options, such as financing guarantees and contract revisions. In May, things changed. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced that it was reevaluating the amounts that would be paid under its accelerated payment program and suspending its advanced payment program to Part B suppliers effective immediately. In the case of private payers, I would argue that COVID-19 has created a massive windfall. Despite the cost of COVID-19 borne by payers, the reduction in claims paid for all other services has plummeted. While premiums remain constant, the cost borne by, borne by third-party payers, including Medicare, fell steeply. I think that health care insurance companies need to return this windfall 
to struggling hospitals and individuals in the form of refunds of premiums and forgiveness of advance payments. I doubt that payers will make such a refund, nor will the government make them. Well, just to accept crumbs while insurance companies do what they do best, make money out of a disaster. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor national correspondent. It's Election Day in Georgia and West Virginia. It's Tuesday, June 9th, and you're listening to the 418th live edition of Talking Tuesday. Stand by. The largest overhaul in decades to evaluation and management E&M guidelines for office physic codes takes effect January 1st, 2021. The drastic changes include new code definitions and deletions, plus new guidelines and documentation requirements. With so many changes ahead, the time to prepare is now. Do that by joining Terry Fletcher today for a 90-minute review of the 2021 E&M coding and documented changes for physician practices. Get ready for the largest overhaul to E&M in over 20 years. This important webcast is today, Tuesday, June 9th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY at checkout. This webcast is part of the portfolio of educational webcasts produced by ICD-10 Monitor. And during this national public health emergency, accessible online education is more important than ever. Visit the ICD-10 Monitor bookstore to learn how you can subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast. Up next, Talk 10 Tuesday's coding report. The Talk 10 Tuesday coding report is sponsored by Panacea helping clients proactively identify risks and opportunities with frontline expertise in coding, compliance, and data integrity. Here now is Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. CMS released the fiscal year 21 ICD-10 CM, excuse me, let me try that again, ICD-10 PCS codes on May 28th, This final release included 544 new codes rather than the 224 that were in the fiscal year 21 inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule. The largest increase is found in the medical and surgical section. The 398 new codes in this section are due to the addition of root operation fragmentation to multiple body systems using the percutaneous approach an ultrasonic qualifier. Another addition is the device radioactive element to various body systems. The device contractility modulation device was added to the subcutaneous and connective tissue system. Another device added to the lower and upper joints body systems is internal fixation device with sustained compression. This device is also known as Dynanail or Mini Dynanail, and it was presented at Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting in March of 2020. It has been added to the fusion tables. There are a number of devices and substances which have been added to the new technology section, which increased by 33 codes. The details are available in my article, which was published today. There are 68 additions to radiation therapy section. The isotope cesium-131 was added to these tables. It is not too early to review the new codes. Determine if they are applicable to your organization. 
review the EHR to find the applicable documentation. Educate the coders and CDI staff on those codes that have been added and update your facility-specific coding guidelines. Next, we are waiting for the fiscal year 21 ICD-10-CM final codes, which should be published this month. With that, back to you, Erica. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Today, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat concludes his exclusive series on the impact of climate change on mental health. But this morning, Dr. Moffat says it's more than just climate change is impacting mental health. To explain what's been added to the mix is Talking Tuesday resident psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat. Good morning, Dr. Moffat. Good morning, Chuck and everybody. Now, who would have foreseen that an organization devoted to healthcare coding would have had the foresight back in December 2019 to have an exclusive series set up to be devoted to climate-related conditions? I mean, there really wasn't anything about that reflected in our ICD-10 or DSM-5 then or even now. Well, Chuck Buck, Top 10 Tuesday, and ICD-10 Monitor had that foresight because such climate-related conditions were causing health and mental health suffering, even if that couldn't yet be clearly defined diagnostically. And ultimately, isn't that what anything connected to health care is concerned with besides reimbursement? That is human suffering. So month by month, we covered the different conditions, so nostalgia, dysphoria, grief, the anxieties, burnout, violence, and suicide, all as they related to climate change. But along the way, societal events complicated the focus, so we pivoted to include them. The only one we didn't cover was impeachment of President Trump. Now, first was the coronavirus pandemic, becoming known in the United States in February 2020. Soon it was apparent that this pandemic was causing similar psychological distress. Take solastalgia, defined as homesickness while home during climate environmental disruption. For the pandemic, it is homesickness due to being forced to stay home. When you think about it, the commonality makes sense. One was more of an acute disaster than pandemic, while the other is more chronic. That is climate change, but both were disasters. Paradoxically, one intervention seemed to be working for both challenges. That is the stay-at-home guidelines for non-essential workers to stop the acutely escalating spread of the virus. For the climate, that policy turned out to be a positive side effect of reduced carbon emissions, along with clear and bright skies, waterways, and thriving wildlife, including penguins marching in the downtown. The latest complication is the tragic killing of George Floyd and the ensuing protests and riots. For one thing, that added to the risk of contracting the virus once again with the crowding of the, re- of the marchers and the police, most without masks. Then we look at the racism that is not only evident in this tragedy, but with climate change and the coronavirus, in which African Americans and other minority groups are at high risk for death and destruction. Racism racism has been a disaster for African Americans and their supporters for 400 years. So these complications leave us with this challenge to mental health care. Reduce racism and you also reduce some of the most adverse effects of climate change and the coronavirus. How do you do that? Focus on the developing unity. Unity means police joining with protesters in support besides control, as we've seen in Flint, Michigan, and elsewhere. It means climate activists joining with energy corporate leaders. It means medical science joining economic rebound strategies. 
once that takes off, social contagion and uniting leadership, if we can find that, will do the rest. Indeed, the social influence on health is evident in the ICD-10Z codes, so we could appreciate that if only we hadn't been ignoring these codes as much as we have. As the Chinese figure for crisis says, indicates, there is both danger and opportunity here. Thank you, Chuck, and all, for this opportunity to not only focus on the climate, but these others' new and connected risks to our physical and mental health. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Steve. You've given us a little bit of hope, and I hope that someday I'll get to see penguins marching in my town. That was Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick is one of the nation's most prominent psychiatrists. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Dr. Moffick. And be sure to read Dr. Moffick's excellent reporting on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Our Tuesday focus report is from Susan Gatehouse, who reports, now's the time to prepare for post-pandemic audits coming your way. Right, Susan? Correct, Chuck. So thank you for the introduction. Good morning to all. The rapid implementation of coding and billing requirements related to COVID-19 set the stage for confusion, potential fraud, and ultimately inaccurate data if the right measures were not implemented to monitor the coding and billing of COVID claims. On June 1st, the OIG announced that they will audit the use of the $50 billion provided to hospitals and healthcare providers to ensure funds are handled appropriately. With this news, it's time to re-examine your compliance plan and isolate key areas related to COVID-19 to help mitigate internal risk and external audits. The U.S. Attorney General gave the directive to appoint a coronavirus fraud coordinator. This is at the federal and state level to address all financial and legal matters related to COVID-19. A hotline and website are in place for reporting fraudulent activity associated with this pandemic. Healthcare organizations have taken a financial hit, and this is to put it mildly. Due to financial constraints uh, on an organization, coders may have been furloughed, laid off, or even let go during this time, leaving a gaping void for COVID-19 coding and billing education. Preventative functions may, be, may have been overlooked as other areas required attention and adapting to change. The first line of defense for fraud prevention is implementing a compliance plan now to avoid risk later. The following are a few basic areas of consideration. Develop a baseline audit of COVID-19 coding and billing to unveil areas of weakness. A baseline audit will assist in pinpointing areas of concern. For some, it may be the diagnosis coding, others it may be the charging of labs, and documentation is also an area that cannot be overlooked. Construct a compliance plan around specifics of COVID-19 coding and billing and include your compliance plan at the onset. It's important to remember the intricacies of COVID coding and billing, such as the waivers, various labs and their specific requirements, diagnosis coding, modifiers, condition codes, should all be taken into consideration. The fact that the billing, that billing of COVID-19 is across multiple departments adds in the, in the complexity of creating a plan and implementing a plan. So we want to continue to update the plan as guidelines around COVID-19 may continue to unfold. Also develop a pre-built check and balance process to ensure accurate coding and billing. 
assigned COVID coding and billing specialists for this task. These individuals have demonstrated a solid understanding of COVID coding and billing and have stayed abreast of ongoing coding and billing directives monitor improvements and provide follow-up targeted education accordingly. To streamline this process, explore the opportunity with your organization in developing a pre-bill edit to ensure COVID claims are reviewed prior to billing. Many organizations generated an edit to ensure diagnosis coding is accurate. Is accurate. The accuracy in generating lab charges is just as important, so don't let the validation of these charges take a back seat. COVID-19 has left many revenue cycle departments confused on guidelines, the appropriate use of codes, and the specificity needed with physician documentation. Chaos typically follows confusion. The current administration has funneled a tremendous amount of money into healthcare systems. It, it will not be long before they take steps to ensure the funds were appropriate, appropriated as intended. So healthcare organizations cannot afford to miss the mark on this. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Susan. That was Susan Gatehouse. Susan is the founder and CEO of Axia Solutions. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you, Susan, very much. And you can read Susan's excellent report on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Up next, our lead story on how to prepare for contract negotiations in light of the coronavirus. Terry Fletcher standing by with that report. You're listening to the 418th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Imagine the convenience of having access to one of the nation's most respected sources of interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Imagine no more registering for each resource, e-books, coding charts, e-newsletters, blogs, plus live and on-demand webcasts. No hassles, no searches. Now you can have access with an all-access pass from MedLearn Publishing. MedLearn is America's most trusted leader in coding, billing, and compliance for interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Tap into this expertise with an all-access pass, now available with one low annual investment. The all-access pass opens a new window of convenience, giving you complete access to the MedLearn portfolio of resources. Subscribe today for your all-access pass. Get top-rated radiology, interventional radiology coding, and compliance education. Now available online at shop.medlearn.com. Our lead story this morning is reported by Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, everyone. So I wanted to talk about paired contract negotiations. When commercial payers and providers come to the negotiating table this year, they will do so during a pandemic. The unprecedented financial and public health challenges payers and providers face will in turn affect the types of agreements they strike. I've walked physicians and medical practices through this process many times over the past 25 years. And there are always negotiating points to keep in mind during these debates with payers over contract language, inclusions, exclusions, and coverages. But trends that may affect payer-provider contract negotiations, given the COVID-19 pandemic, could be a challenge in the long term, not just the short term, for many providers. First, new contracts may be seen as a way for providers to shore up lost revenue. Though it's a case-by-case basis, providers so far are bearing the brunt of financial pressure brought on by COVID-19. In comparison, first quarter results from large national insurers indicate COVID-19 isn't having a significant material effect on finances as claims for elective and preventative services drop. 
To make up lost revenue, providers may be looking to improve their financial footing through their negotiated contracts with payers and the payers are preparing for this. Also, force majeure clauses and other protections could be part of these talks. Force majeure clauses are an old legal concept saying a party or both parties in a contract may be excused from performing obligations outlined in the contract if an unforeseen circumstance makes it impossible or impractical impractical to do so. Force majeure clauses only work when events are unforeseen and wouldn't apply to COVID-19 in the current negotiations. However, providers may give some more thought to how to protect themselves in the future. Some may address pandemics directly and outline in the case of a future pandemic, a payer must expedite payments or waive prior authorizations, for example. I could see increased discussions around shared savings into value-based agreements as well. In upside-only risk payment arrangements, providers get to share in savings if spending becomes in below threshold. Providers in upside-only risk agreements may actually see a bigger payout this year because of how many COVID-19 services were deferred. However, most cost-sharing or sharing, uh, shared savings contracts have quality thresholds that have to be met before a provider can share in those savings. So it's important to read the fine print of these contracts. But some points of negotiation that will help you na- navigate these waters or at least give you a good idea of where to start, start with know the rules of engagement. Who's going to be accessing you through the contract? Self-insured plans, fully insured plans, et cetera. Is this a lease plan? Know what you need to be aware of as far as rules of engagement. Understand authority levels and limitations. This can help you know where you stand if you know the level of authority the person has with who you're negotiating process with. When you're negotiating with payers, this is a must. You don't have time to wonder, are they cutting to the chase? Insist with speaking with someone who may have the ultimate authority to negotiate your, to your satisfaction. Also, are you willing to walk away? Know before you go in to negotiate which procedures or terms, if not met, will cause you to walk away from the table. Know which ones you're going to use as concessions to get what you really want. And ask yourself, what can I live and what can I not live without? You're not going to get everything you want, so it's a negotiation. You will have to compromise. Make sure that you read everything. Read the contract very carefully for terms and clauses that are one-sided, such as amendment provisions, definitions of medical necessity, rate changes, timely filing provisions, prevailing contract, and termination times. State laws also apply. Sometimes they supersede some of the government information. Be aware of your state laws and how they affect the way insurers do business. Be aware of your contract term. This is important. Many payers want to sign providers to long-term contracts, which is three or more years. But does your contract have built-in increases to keep pace with inflation or other considerations? Most do not that I've noticed. Make sure your rates are clear. If the rates are based on proprietary fee schedules, you need to know what they are. If they're based on Medicare, is it current or prevailing or another year? If current and prevailing, what do you do if the rates drop significantly? Just make sure you are clear on your rates. Know what isn't covered. Be clear on what the contract isn't covering. What procedure codes aren't covering procedures with very low reimbursements, or do they require to use a specific outside vendor? Know the limitations on also specialized services. And lastly, prepare. Preparation is also known as due diligence. This requires a lot of energy and commitment, but come prepared. Be ready to ask questions and demand answers. More negotiating tips is my article this week published today in ICD10Monitor.com. Erica, back to you. Terry, that was a ton of information. Thank you. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor. (laughs) 
And now it's time for our very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Well, doctors don't understand how coders compliantly select codes. This can set up coding clinical disconnects. Frankly, I don't always get it myself, and I'm pretty good at this coding thing. You need to use exact verbiage, except when you don't. Like, no doctor is ever going to say hemorrhagic disorder due to extrinsic circulating anticoagulants. I can barely say it. It's such a tongue twister. The wording of many of the social determinants of health will not be matched precisely by the provider's documentation. Sometimes coding clinic gives advice on what verbiage is allowed to go to what code, and sometimes coders just use common sense. The indexing of the verbiage of Kawasaki disease goes nowhere, but Kawasaki is a non-essential modifier for the code entitled Mucocutaneous Lymph Node Syndrome, M30.3, and Kawasaki's syndrome does index there. However, a coder or a CDIS would meet annoyance and resistance if they asked the provider to clarify, did they mean Kawasaki's syndrome when they documented Kawasaki disease? Why am I bringing this up today? There are many um, manifestations of COVID-19 which make for clever acronyms but won't yield an ICD-10 CM code. The Pediatric Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome of Children, MIS-C, is quite serious and is manifested by different body parts becoming inflamed, including the heart, lungs, kidneys, brain, skin, eyes, or gastrointestinal organs. It is described as having Kawasaki disease-like features. There is no indexing for MIS-C. Kawasaki disease-like features isn't going to get you anywhere either. You would need the provider to specify which organs are inflamed, again using uh, codable terminology. Is it an unspecified arteritis because it isn't a chronic ischemic issue? Is it a sequela of COVID-19 or an acute manifestation? An infective myocarditis or infective pericarditis implies that the heart is infected by the virus currently whereas I-40.8, other acute myocarditis, might be more appropriate with B-94.8, sequelae of other specified infectious and parasitic diseases. In the same vein, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, or MODS, indexes nowhere. Speaking as a clinician, if I had a patient with MODS from infection, I would call that sepsis. I recommend you educate your providers to diagnose sepsis from COVID-19 with acute sepsis-related organ dysfunction as evidenced by, and here they should list the specific organ dysfunctions, and that will get you the code for severe sepsis while we still have one. How about COVID toes, described as red or purple discoloration of the toes with paresthesias? Dermatologists liken it to chillblains or pernio, which is a reaction, a skin reaction, to cold exposure. They may also describe it as a vasculitis. It may be optimal for the provider to expound upon the term COVID toes because there is no specific code for it and the medical community is trying to maintain a registry. Perhaps COVID toes, parenthesis, I-E, pernio, close parenthesis, would work. 
that will get you a code for the Pernio, and then you can use Covitose and still be descriptive. Be on the lookout for new acronyms and abbreviations that may crop up as COVID-19 medicine evolves. If the provider documents a diagnosis for which there is no indexing or advice to assign a code, you may need to educate and query. We can't monitor what we can't measure, and we need accurate codes to measure the manifestations of COVID-19. Listeners, if you are participating in protests or just going about your daily COVID-19 lives, please remember to maintain social distance and wear your mask correctly. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. That was an excellent segment. That's going to be a wrap for our 418th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists for being with us today. Terry Fletcher, who reported our lead story, Susan Gatehouse, Lori Johnson, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, Tim Powell, and, of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can always listen to all of Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.